Hey everyone, I'm Alex Cantor. And I'm Lily Rosenthal. Welcome to our podcast, Hot Pastrami. We are coming to you from our favorite booth at Cantor's Deli here in LA. We're going to invite some of our friends to join us for a chat over some matzo ball soup and pastrami sandwiches. So join us for new episodes of Hot Pastrami every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts. See you soon. Bye. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Sharp Tongue Podcast. I'm your girl, Jessie Mae Peluso. This week is a special episode. It's a grief survival guide episode, a part of our grief survival guide mini series that is a part of the Sharp Tongue Podcast. If you know anybody who has experienced loss or is going through some kind of grief, direct them towards those episodes. There's about 23 of them. Today makes episode 24. This is How to Keep the Dead Alive with my friend and host of the grief podcast, Dead Talks, David Ferrugio, is in studio this week to discuss all things grief, how to overcome it. We even have a little conversation about DMT, and we offer some lessons that we both learned from dealing with grief. If you guys can do me a favor, you know I want that five-star rating. Speaking of grief... I'll grieve that. If that doesn't happen, it is happening. It is happening now. Manifest it. Go to the app. Click five stars. Rate the podcast five stars. And I love you so much for it ahead of time. And again, if you have anybody who is dealing with loss or is maybe in a funk, in a little bit of depression over the loss of a loved one, a friend, send them to these episodes. We hope it can help. Brings a little bit of healing and peace of mind. So I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. How to Keep the Dead Alive with host of Dead Talks podcast, David Ferrugio. Sharp Tongue Podcast. Beep, 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 beep. You're listening to the Sharp Tongue Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse May Peluso. It's a personal look. Well, it's not really a look because it's a podcast. I'm already fucking this up. This is kind of like a verbal comedy diary, a deep look into the crevices of my mind. It's going to get dirty. You might cry. You'll probably laugh. Hopefully you'll laugh. Talk about my dog sometimes. Each week it's something different. Sometimes I have a guest host. Sometimes it's going to be a movie companion episode. Sometimes I just ramble about the bullshit I dealt with the week before. You never know what you're going to get. It's raw, uncut, and funny. It's me. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm well. I am. Is that a true well? It is a true well. Yes. Where does well fall in between like fine and great? I think it's an acceptance of great and horrible being a real thing, but you're in the middle of them both. So when you're when you're when you're like I'm well, you're you're in the middle. You kind of are existing in between the the polarities of life being like extremely amazing and what am I going to do now? So where does I'm fine stand? I'm fine. I feel a little bit more leaning towards the the dark side. That's Don't true. you think? I, yeah, I think fine is close. Yeah, right. Fine is closer to shit. Yeah. And well is closer to good. Yes. But not great. But don't you think people like us, people who've lost our creators, if you will, at least I can speak for myself. I'm interested to see what your opinion is. Don't you think that we understand and can function in fine more and know that fine isn't so bad? No, I mean, in retrospect to, I guess, crap situations specific to loss, yeah, I think fine is great sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's a bumper sticker right there. But. It is. You should put that <laughs> on your car. Yeah, I don't know if we're, I don't, it's like what I just alluded to with blanketing anxiety and getting confused as to if I feel anxiety or if I'm just covering it up. Um, I think it's just maybe getting used to it and it just feels normal, but that's not healthy either. Well, I don't think it's not healthy. I think, I think we've been told what healthy is and that's profitable for a lot of businesses mm. to create a standard of health that I think is one very unattainable, two, extremely expensive, so you stay in this rat race, and three, not necessarily the steps we need to take to be healthy. I I have so many questions for you. One, just off the top of my head, what did you do posthumously after your father passed? I know you were young, but what did you do and what do you do now to keep yourself healthy when you can feel grief pulling you in well i have like a little bit of a cheat code with biologically because i feel like i forgot so much 
Mm. Which frustrates me. I bring that up all the time is because when I was 12, I obviously I remember that day and leading up to it. But after I saw the towers go down, oh yeah, big surprise. Anyone didn't know my dad died in 9-11. We'll um, get to it. We'll get to that. And don't mind the twin tower pimples on my face also because it looks like the New York City skyline. We don't see them. Oh. Yeah. You don't see them. No, I don't see them at all. Oh, I got great. a chimple. A chimple? Yeah. It's a chin pimple. <laughs> <laughs> I did just, I'm not going to get on that line. Um, <laughs> it's two, it's two different things. I feel like my grief was split into halves because I f- I had my youth where I don't remember so much. And then as I got older, there was that whole experience. So mm. I, I see my grief as two, literally two different worlds almost. So walk me through your first world. What was that like to be so young? Cause that's an interesting subject and an interesting perspective to be so young and grieving. Cause I feel like I don't think the child brain is even developed enough to be able to handle and sustain such pain and loss. Physically, I wasn't even developed at that time. I was a late bloomer. So there's another problem there. But I, again, it, there's so much I forget that it comes later. So when I, if, if we were really to reminisce on what I experienced as a kid, you know, I, I, th- I, don't, I don't know what came out of me. I don't know if it was because I, ha- I had a good family and whatnot. You know what I mean? So I had that support system. So I still had like a good childhood. I was very blessed to have certain things around me that didn't make other obstacles an issue. But again, it's really the focus of how it happened as I as I got older, because things really came full circle for me as I started coming into my own and, and understanding my grief. Because I think at twelve years old, I knew what was happening. Uh, you know, you're not, you know, you, you you understand the world at some capacity at twelve, so you're not completely oblivious. So I knew how horrifying and real it was, but I still wasn't able to compute it and know how to get through it. So I, I really leaned on my family and just kind of like continuing through. So I wouldn't say there was a process. The process really hit me as I got older and realizing that maybe wasn't realizing it. I, I try not to put the blame on my flaws and shit that I go through to correlate to me as a kid, because maybe that's just me. But then I think about is, am I like this in my intimate relationships because of what I went through as a kid? I, I don't know if it's important to decipher that. But again, I think uh, I'm, I'm a extroverted loner as it is. So I spend a lot of time by myself and, and sitting in things. And I think for me, that was the most important thing to get through anything, let alone grief alone was sitting in it as opposed to finding distractions and doing things that make me feel put like an Advil on the grief that, that, that didn't really work for me. I realized that quickly. So for me personally, the biggest thing that worked was allowing myself to feel as simple as that sounds. I am very similar. I'm definitely a extroverted introvert, which a lot of people find surprising because I'm a stand-up comedian. So it's interesting that you are also similar in that sense. Talk us through what happened to your dad. I know you've probably discussed it so many times, Mm -hmm. but tell my listeners so they know what happened to your father and how you lost your dad. (sighs) Okay, listeners. So uh, in case you didn't know about 9-11 that happened in 2001. What? uh, Yeah. I got to go. I know. After Y2K, (laughs) just to clarify the difference there. So yeah, my dad was in the, uh, on the 105th floor of the World Trade Center Worked for Cantor Fitzgerald and to not, you know, drag out the story. I think you all know how it ends. I was, <laughs> I was, in, <laughs> wait, <laughs> should I continue? It's like an M night Shyamalan movie. How did it end? <laughs> is that his brother? Or is it a different pronunciation? I, I can't say his last it's name. It's okay. I'm uh, bad with last names. Yours is you, Ferugio. You know what? I was, I'm happy you brought that up because just to clarify your listeners, you butchered my last name. I did. Oh, I think. Yeah. Oh. Where, where are you looking? Oh, yeah. it's just to clarify, it's Ferugio. Ferugio, not Ferugio. I don't know, hey, know if it was a hard or soft G. I mean, you know, it depends on the situation, but yes, normally it's a, Yeah, Ferugio. It's cool. We'll go back to the 9 11. I story. wore my Italian shirt in honor of our heritage. I almost wore a shirt that said Italians do it better, but I was like, that's too aggressive. Oh, that would have been great. I know. I don't want to go over the top. Where were we? We were talking about your dad and the 105th floor. There we go. And working for the company he was working for. Yeah, so and how nine eleven turned out. Oh, we know it but wasn't I'll, good. I'll tell you my story. That wasn't good. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, it depends who which side you're on, I guess. <laughs> That's true. So, <laughs> so I was in seventh grade. Long story long, I that day was weird. Let alone obviously what happened. But for me, my mom, my family left, made the decision to leave me in school throughout the day. Which I mean, what else are you supposed to do? There's so much chaos going on. So I remember first period, my buddy Jeff, who was notoriously late. I don't know if he came to school high at that time. Twelve years old, maybe. <laughs> And he walked in, he's like, hey, doesn't your dad work in the World Trade Center? I'm like, yeah, why? It's like a plane flew into the building. I'm like, what? Like a plane that doesn't, it didn't compute in either direction. I was like, wow, that sounds weird. Okay. 
I believe I tried going down to the office to make a, a phone call just to see what was up. They didn't allow me to make a call. So I just had to go through the entire day wondering what the heck was happening. People were getting called out of school. Kids were yapping this or that. And I, the whole day I went through school not knowing what the heck was going on. So I just went through my school day wondering. And I walked home with my best friend James at the time. He was suspended from the school bus before the school year started. <laughs> James sounds like a fun time. James fantastic. So that's that's one note. But it was a blessing because I'm like happy he was he was an asshole as a kid because I would have rather no one else walking by my side that day. Aww. And so I remember we were talking about this, that, and the other, about speculating what happened. And when you walk into my house on Polyway, New Jersey, you make a bend and you can start seeing my house. And that's when I saw cars everywhere. I saw a bunch of cars outside my house. That was the first moment I realized, okay, something's, something's off, obviously. I walk in the house and this kind of preludes my memory loss because I remember walking in the house, I get separated from James. My mom and my family are trying to keep me away from the television. So mind you, at this point, everything happened. This is what, three o'clock in the afternoon. So the towers are down. The dust was settling. This, all this shit went down already, which to me freaks me out because I was just oblivious to what was happening. And now playing it back again, going back and forth to a child and an adult, I'm thinking, oh my God, my dad was, this was happening. My dad was dying and di died when I had no idea what was happening, even though I knew something was happening, if yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And then they're trying to keep me away from the TV at this point, you know, CNN, all those people are just repeating everything on replay. And then I forced myself to the TV, saw the towers go down. And that was when I broke down. I remember just my, the Abertellis, my cousins were next to me. I remember just breaking down. That was the first moment of just letting it out, just realizing the horror, what the hell just went down. And it's like, after that, it was like, my body was like, okay, you're relaxed. You're not going to let you see anymore or deal with anything. They're just going to black you out there. And then you'll have to deal with it later. And that's why I feel like there's a big gap in between. I get frustrated because I can't really compute how as a kid, a young kid, how did I do this? How did I do that? That's a question for my mom and my sisters. But this is another level of conversation. I'll allow you to direct the conversation from here. But the, there was a, like a boomerang effect in my grief that just happened recently this year with my mom of how that experience and what we went through with grief and loss and all my family kind of came full circle for me. Mm. And I don't know if you have other questions lined up, but that was, it's just like, it's a very powerful experience of how my grief prepped me for life, essentially. Yeah, grief really does prepare you for so many different facets and experiences that you go through. I think for one, the one thing that I have experienced and I'm wondering if you've experienced is how these sort of inane experiences can trigger grief, how you lose something so insignificant. Like for me, maybe this isn't uh, the greatest example, but my dad bought me a necklace when I was 16, this thick Italian Figaro link. You know, there's nothing more Italian than someone naming a necklace Figaro. All the necklaces are named after like Italian opera singers. <laughs> uh, the Figaro Figaro. Figaro. And you put it on and you go, Figaro, Figaro. Uh, so it was just a beautiful necklace. And I, I, I've had it since I was 16. When I was filming in Greece, I don't know what I did. I don't know what I did with it. I, I did something I never do. I took it off and it's gone. It's in the Ionian Sea somewhere. Losing that necklace reinstated and reinvigorated my grief over losing my father. Mm. And I don't know if this is for you, but I'm curious if you've had experiences in your life where you lose something not necessarily related to the person or you go through something and it it opens up that grief. And in my mind, I, the grief never leaves us. It doesn't. We've learned that our life grows around it and it stays as it is. But I do believe, like you said, the importance of the action of grieving and how that can be useful and how it can be something that isn't rooted in so much darkness, how it sort of teaches you how to let go of objects that have such a hold on you. I just talked about this yesterday and hopefully it relates to what you're talking about. I think it's a, it's a 
it's a double-edged sword because I feel like with loss specifically, and again, I've said this a bunch of times, I think there's different facets of loss. Mm-hmm. I think what we're talking about is biological, but then you're talking about how other situations that don't relate to it. It could be just loss. It could be a living loss also, relationships, right. this or that, jobs, whatever. Exactly. So, which is another interesting point. But I I was thinking recently about fear and gratitude. And now stay with me. I mm-hmm. sound a little corny, but- No, we, th- we get corny on this. I love it. And get a little corona corny. Yeah, we get corona corny. <laughs> So what I was thinking was how I think there's a fine line between loss, grief, and fear and gratitude because I think they're both run parallel with each other because I think when you lose someone and at what age you realize, oh my God, that hits close to home and you realize how quickly shit can go, which is, again, all these lessons are between fear and gratitude because you can look at it in two ways. You can be fearful and think, oh my God, this can happen again. I can, you might grasp onto things too tightly thinking I'm going to lose, I can lose this, this my partner, my job, whatever it is, my loved one next to me, like, they can die too. And there's that fear and anxiety towards this happens to me. It, it was so real that this might happen again. So there's the fear side, or you can look at it and say, and, and show gratitude because you realize how fragile life is. And then you can be more grateful in your relationships, be more grateful in the life that you live. So, but I think those lines are, it's a very fine line. I think it's, it, you can teeter back and forth at times, but it relates to that trigger of if something happens and it brings up those emotions, oh my God, I can lose. I think you're, you can go back and forth between that fear. Cause I think that's fear because you've experienced this loss. It can happen again, or it is happening again. But to me, what is important is to fear and flip that shit, which is literally if I'm, I'm feeling that fear, I just try to flip it to gratitude. As woo as that sounds, that is the balancing act of experiencing trauma and grief is, is balancing that line of am I going to be thankful for the time that I had, the time that I have, or am I just going to be completely fearful because of what I went through and that it might happen again? I think that's a, a poignant point because I do feel that in this society, we demonize certain emotions that are actually very useful for us. Fear is a tool. It's a survival mechanism. And it's also an emotional survival mechanism, which is what I believe you're touching on. And I feel and have felt the same way where the fear of being in the moment of knowing that my father or whoever, my mother are going to pass or could pass, it makes me so much more grateful and more present with the ones who are still in my life. Mm -hmm. And it's all about the lessons that were taught through these horrible experiences that you can come out on the other side and be so grateful that you still have that grace in your heart that you can even have gratitude because there's also the other side, people turn very bitter when you meet these older people or anybody in general, if you come across someone like just, you know, a bitter woman, which is a phrase that's tossed around, what has she lost in her life or his life? And I think having gratitude can open us up to having a little bit more empathy for strangers. Um, I do want to ask you, because you have your podcast, Dead Talks, which you've already promoted in the beginning of the show that you didn't hear, so don't think I haven't promoted you. Did you say Ferrugio? I, I will say that over and over. I'm going to name a necklace after you. I might change. I might. <laughs> can you change? You can change the last name, but can you change the pronunciation? <laughs> you can do that legally? I don't know. God. Anyway, I I wonder for you, is it annoying to talk about death so much? And are you able to? It's a two parter. Is it difficult for you to talk about death so much? And part B, what what do you reap from it for yourself? Like, are you able to vicariously let go a little bit more? Are you able to find? And has this become your purpose? I think so. I, I don't know. Purpose, schmurpus. I don't, I don't, I don't know what that, I don't know. Maybe I, I think, uh, the one thing that I've noticed with this podcast, is it hasn't so much helped me with my grief cause I'm so far down the line with it. And maybe there's things I still have to figure out. But for me, these conversations have really helped me with my day to day stuff. Like mm. when I'm going through other things that have nothing to do with my dad and other forms of grief, if you will, whether it's again, relationships or whatever I'm going through. It, that's helped me because all the time I, when I'm talking, when I talk to you, when I talk to all these other amazing guests, I'm listening to their story and how they got through grief. And it reminds me, and I say this all the time, that the process of grief and how other people like you have gotten through it is so applicable to everyday stuff we go through. So mm-hmm. when, when people listen to my podcast, like, oh, it's death. I don't want to hear that. I get that. But the lessons you learn from people's perseverance and what they've gone through and how they've overcome certain situations, you can apply that to all the stuff that we go through. So I often get triggered about things I currently have in my life. 
as opposed to my dad. It, it, it goes back and forth. Of course, there's realizations that I have and I, it relates to my loss. But the biggest personal selfish experience that I have in my episodes is it, these conversations help me through whatever I'm going through currently or if I'm still working out because I've learned so much from people and different perspectives that really help me, if that makes sense. Yeah. And then in regards to getting sick of it, I, I think I need to take breaks once in a while. But at the same time, what keeps me going is honestly just thinking this is just another person that is opening up to me and sharing their story. And every story is still so different, even though it's the same topic. So it stays fresh at the same time, but it's also important to me to be present to the other person talking. So again, as corny Corona as that sounds, it's just important to me to allow that person to speak, which doesn't, it, it kind of like levels me out. So even if I do feel like I'm getting a little, I have to like take a break, just the fact that I'm talking to a new person and they're willing to talk to me, it kind of keeps me going. I think that's beautiful without making you feel cheesy. Mm. The one thing I wonder, and the one thing I was thinking about when I knew you were going to be on the pod, which was within a short time frame, I appreciate you, mm-hmm. is what is it like for a man to grow up without his father? Thank you for noticing I'm a man. You're welcome. Uh, it sucks. <laughs> <laughs> Next okay. question. Next question. <laughs> no, yeah, no, <laughs> what just, do you put in nice. your oatmeal in the morning? <laughs> <laughs> I miss oatmeal. Uh, no, I, um, it just, it just sucks. That's like the, it really just sucks. And the, the hardest part about that, again, specifically to being a man, and I'm sure it, it can go on either side of the spectrum. It just sucks. It's like, I'm now, you know, I still have a long way to go on what I want to do, this, that, and the other, whatever. But there's so many man to man moments that are coming, that have happened, that are happening, that I just want to chop it up with my dad. You know, I want to, I want, there's things I, very close to my mother, very close to my sisters, and, you know, we're very open with each other, but there's certain conversations that, you know, a father and son can have, and that sucks. You know what I mean? But it goes back to the gratefulness, yada, yada, yada. It kind of, sometimes I get annoyed at myself. I got fucking gratefulness. Like, I get it, but it just sucks. It really just sucks. And the hardest part, again, is not sharing the new memories with the people you lost. I think that is one of the many other things and there's layers to it, but not being able to share new memories. Like my buddy sent me a photo that I never saw. And that was such an electrifying moment because it was as if I could have created a new memory. Mm -hmm. I saw a photo I never seen. So to me, that was the closest thing I could experience to a new memory. Oh my, that's a photo of me and my dad I never saw. And it felt new. And that reminded me of how much it sucks not to share those new memories with my dad and not having to be able to ask a man to man question about what I feel like I would get advice from a father figure I have plenty of father figures in my life, but at the end of the day, I'm just, I don't know my dad and it blows. It does blow. And besides your mother and your family, you mentioned father figures. How have you been able to, without a lack of a better term, compensate for the void that your father has placed in your life? I got a really big truck. (laughs) You have conversations with your truck? (laughs) About <laughs> no, I did. I actually did buy a Ford Bronco, a '96 Bronco, the same truck that he had. But oh, was, that's cool. It was pretty badass, actually. He used to drive the OJ, the white OJ, and so I ended up just <laughs> spontaneous. I went for coffee at 7:30 in the morning. Ended up leaving with a '96 white OJ. That's that's very random. No, no, you could cut this part out. But um, no, 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 we're I, gonna I keep it all in. I don't uh, compensate. Is that what you're asking? Yeah, like how do you? How have you been able to uh, replace? Is a horrible word. Where are you mm-hmm. able to fulfill the space? where your father is not with who, how are you having these manly conversations and man to man conversations? Who are you going to? Well, I'm lucky to have like people talk shit about hard to find friends in LA. I, I hear that all the time, but I, I don't know what it, I got very blessed to have certain people around me, East coast and West coast. So I, I have plenty of, I have plenty of people to talk to if I want to like the, my support system, my friends, my family is incredible male and female. Um, but to me, the more I thought about it, I think if you want to use the word compensating, for lack of better words, it's, I think it's being that hopefully, I don't know if I am hopefully being that man for my mom, and my sisters. Wow. Cause this kind of tracks back and I don't mean to divert the conversation, but when I mentioned how the grief came full circle, if you don't mind my, my mother, she went to cardiac arrest in July and I actually thought of you at one point, I'll get into that, but mm-hmm. she went to cardiac arrest in July. I literally was flying to London, taking like my first trip in a while turned on my phone, landed on the, landed off the plane. My sister texted me, call me, which is kind of, again, it's, it's, it's all fucking full. It's wild. She, so her heart stopped for like 10 minutes, went to cardiac arrest, landed in London, flew right back to Jersey. Oh my gosh. And the full circle aspect, I'm going to go back and forth is because, and ironically, three weeks before my mom, she's okay now. 
which is a miracle in itself. That's part of the story. I had my mom on the podcast the first time. And one of the things I brought up that sticks with me is that I said to her, and I've always felt this way, I felt like a guilt because at 12 years old, I wasn't sure if I was the man of the family. I was the man of the family at that point, 12 years old. And I felt like I wasn't there for my mom. I wasn't the man. I feel like I wasn't able to show up as the man. Was I there for my sisters? Was I there for my mom? And, you know, she did a motherly Italian things, console me, you were there. But still, I felt like a, a gap that I wish I was more of a support system for my sisters and my mom, even though they tell you I, w- I was. And then when this happened with my mom, where a heart stopped, I flew back in. I see you at 1 a.m. to see my mom on her, on the in the bed, like non-responsive with a breathing tube down her throat, not sure what was going to happen. The wild part was there was one specific moment, I think a day or so later, um, and mom, I hope you don't mind me sharing this story. So if you're listening. Here I, she is. I love you. What would I you love do you. if she just popped out of the closet? I'd fucking <laughs> chug this beer and dip. So there's a, there's a specific moment that it was starting to get real the day or two later when she finally came up, she came out and I had to, I just chose to handle this certain situation. And my sister kind of validated the situation without me asking. And I'm not trying to toot my own horn. It just means a lot to me. She's like, David, I, in relation to this specific portion, she's like, I always seen you as my little brother. I always seen you as my little brother, but at this moment I didn't see you like that anymore. And after I handled this situation, she was able to step in and kind of take a, take an approach to the situation. But the, the follow-up that I got from my sisters in this whole process, the week of just chaos, not knowing where my mom, where my mom was going to survive this or that. I felt like this was my opportunity and not doing it to like be macho and I have to step up because I wasn't when I was 12. I just, it was, I, it felt natural to be there for my sisters and they were there just as much for me. It was the, the collusion together was incredible, but this was almost full circle as me feeling guilty at 12 years old. Was I there for my family? Was I the man of the house for my sisters? And then this opportunity came quote unquote opportunity and I felt it was my opportunity to fucking be there for my sisters and be the man of the, of the family, even though, again, they were there just as much for me. But that was the wild full circle part where it was almost as if a door could close. And you could always, I always look back, did I do enough? Could I do that? But that's just like the stupid little annoying roommate in my head. Mm-hmm. But it was like a full circle moment of realizing that I feel like I did what I, the best I could to be the man of the house and show up for my sisters in this moment. That was the full circle event that was just powerful to me. It was a lot. And just realizing that I don't know if my family and I would be able to handle it as we did without the prior experience of loss in our life. It is amazing how it sort of armors you, like we mentioned before, through so many different aspects of your life, but in subsequent situations where people are going to be sick or fall ill, it does sort of armor you with uh, a resilience. It gives you some resilience and, and gives you a little bit more of a a strength, a strength that I think only comes from loss. Do you know what your first memory is of your father? First memory? Um, earliest I, memory you can recall. My earliest memory I can recall was in Staten Island. A cop wrote my dad a ticket. And I remember my dad being so pissed off. Very quick moment. And all of a sudden the cop, the cop walks, like drives away. And I just remember my dad, you need to see this on camera, just flips off the cop and just gives him the finger and then just walks out. So I think that was my first memory of my dad, which I don't know if there's a lesson in there. <laughs> don't double park in Barlow Avenue in Staten Island. Maybe that's the lesson. So it's already not a heartwarming memory, but that's definitely it. But the, another early memory was in Jersey. This is a little later was, uh, and my dad wasn't, I never like saw his temper go up. He's a very calm guy. But I remember uh, we were like talking at a light this time in Jersey and the guy behind us honks like really quickly. And I see my dad look in the rear view and, you know, my dad's a pretty beefy guy. And he just like looks in the rear view. I noticed that. I was like, okay, maybe something's happening. He like pulls in like the middle of the intersection, stops, gets out of the car and starts like screaming at this guy and like getting in his face, yelling at him like this, that. And you know, I'm looking at like a nine-year-old kid just turning around. He's kind of scared. Not at him, just the situation. He gets in the car and he looks at me. He goes, David, number one, don't do that because the guy might have a gun. Two, don't tell your mother. And then we just drove away. <laughs> and then I didn't tell my mom until he died. So I feel like that, I feel like I kept it, I kept it together. But one thing I did want to say real quick is I was thinking of you because in that moment, you know, with your father and Alzheimer's and memory, mm. the whole week of my mom in the hospital, you know, she, she went through a very traumatic experience, this or that, a heart stop for 10 minutes, blah, blah, blah. She, her memory was like Dory from Finding Nemo. It was, you tell her one thing and two minutes later she forget it. And we weren't sure if that was going to be there we had to give it time, stay positive, 
And eventually now she's back, but for the first week, her memory was, she doesn't remember that whole week. It was really bad. And I'm having to remind her what happened. She thought her parents were still alive. She thought my dad was still alive. And that's a whole nother experience. But the, the balancing act of dealing with that situation, I felt so much compassion for what you went through and, you know, thousands and millions of other people that are dealing with people with Alzheimer's, whatever the numbers are, because that was terrifying. It is terrifying. It's a, to have somebody you love not know you or someone, not only just someone you love, but your foundation. We're talking about our parents. You know, I think those other adjacent relationships might be a little bit different. I can't speak on them, but to have your foundation rocky makes you rocky. Mm. And we're, we all are born from someone. So when that is threatened or when that is compromised, you, your whole agency and everything about you and how you feel about yourself gets foggy and very scary because you're like, well, am I going to be okay? And it does sound selfish, but that's, it's survival. You're like, well, wait a minute, my mom and my dad, like, what about me? So it, it is definitely, um, something that you have to deal with while they're alive and you have to sort of try to not have panic attacks every other day because you're like, well, my mom or my dad or whoever is forgetting who I am. But in the same breath, I can't imagine and could not have imagined my childhood without my dad or without my mom, uh, that void. I, I would, I wouldn't be here. Obviously everything that happens brings us to a different place, but I can't imagine as a boy growing up without that quintessential character in your life that, the core to your manhood, the the connection to your, you know, the connection between a boy and his father is similar to like a girl and her mother. And were you closer with him as a kid or your mom, or did you have special relationships with both of them? Yeah. I mean, I was blessed to have, you know, be pretty close to both of them, but weird thought, which yeah. just kind of came to me. It was like, I, I, I <laughs> this my, I, my dad was very present in my life. You know, he, he worked nine to five, nine to six, whatever. So I, you know, I saw him. I didn't, I didn't see him that much during the week. At night I did, of course, but he was very active in my life, coming to my little league baseball games, as I feel like every New Jersey parent that does. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but the weird part was like the fact that he was so present and such a good dad in my eyes, it's like, damn, I wonder if it the grief would have been easier if he was a shit dad. I've always wondered that as well. You know what I mean? Because the fact that he was so present and I, you know, we had such a relationship, then it's ripped under you. Then it's like, it just kind of extrapolates the loss. And I'm not trying to compare anyone that didn't have a good relationship with their father or parent and then the loss. Cause that's still a, a weird thought too. Cause then you could think, okay, I didn't have this relationship. Then you start grieving the of the relationship you didn't have. So it's like, I'm not comparing the two. It's just an interesting thought when the rug gets pulled underneath you, when you do have such a good relationship. Cause I always, I, mean, I find interesting the relationships of loss when you have good relationships and bad relationships, cause they're such a different experience. It is. I think when you do have a really good basis you're grieving all that could have been and all that you lost that was so beautiful and meaningful. And my speculation when that is not the situation is you're grieving the same. What could have become? What if we were able to mm. rectify? What if we were able to overcome whatever that difficulty was? We could have had a relationship. And speaking of that, listening to you talk and something that I have done to deal with grief as it is an ongoing experience in your life and how it evolves, how are you able to maintain a relationship with your father now with him being gone? Because you did mention seeing a photo and that feeling like a new memory. Mm -hmm. How are you creating new memories? How are you maintaining a relationship and how do you think you can maintain a relationship with someone once they're past? I mean, this podcast is inspired by the death of my dad, my podcast, dead talks and, I think that in itself, you know, was obviously inspired from his loss. If you want to say inspired, I don't know if that's the right word. Mm -hmm. So kind of through that, I'm constantly thinking about him. You know, I, I've, I think I still try to have conversations with them. So I haven't gotten a fucking answer back. So I'm still waiting for that. <laughs> Come on, <laughs> let's go. I had a medium on my show and, uh, and she was talking about, he was right over my shoulder. I'm like, where? Like, I don't, I don't, am I hearing anything? There's like a very interesting moment. Okay, we, is, I need to write a note about the medium. You can continue because I have questions. Yeah, I have questions too. And I experienced it. But I, I think I think it's just uh, it's a it's a feeling. I don't know. I, I try to whether it's real or not. I don't know. But I, I try to talk to him in regards to just in my head as if he's listening. 
Um, I, I, I like reinventing the stories with my family, just memories and the photos in my house, as simple as that sounds, I constantly, he's just always around me physically with photos and talking to other people. But I'm not a religious person. I, don't, I hate to say this LA answer. I guess maybe I'm spiritual. I don't, I don't Maybe. I don't know what that means either. But it's just, it's just a feeling and just thinking about him. And then when I do think about him, other thoughts come up. And it's like a weird, quiet conversation that I feel like I am having with him. So just the fact that I constantly do think about him. I, I do feel like his memory's still with me, obviously. Like, I'm, I haven't forgot him. But the weird part is, it's been so long that some memories do fade. And the part of me, I'm like, damn, I can't, do I remember? I forget his voice sometimes. I forget mm. this or that. And that's the hard part is like, as distance and time continues, certain things fade. Um, but, you know, the idea of him still exists. And I don't know if that answers your question. No, it does. And I, I don't think being spiritual is anything that's negative at all. I know we have that East coast energy where we come into this LA world and everything is very woo woo. So it can feel a little uncomfortable, but you're doing great. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. It's like, yeah. East coast have a sp- problem with spirituality, but everyone's wearing a f- cross on your neck. So I'm like, what the? A figaro next a to figaro. the figaro link. Figaro. Yeah, yeah. Next yeah. to the figaro link. These tenors. What, um, what are some, actually when you were speaking, I was thinking of something that I've experienced with my mother posthumously. Um, is I do feel sometimes this is really crazy. I feel her, her essence and her being in me, like through me. Like there's been moments where I look down at my hands and I like can see her hands. And there's been moments where I feel the decision or something I say is something that she has said. Have you had any of those experiences? And I wonder if it's different because you were so young, but have you felt like, I know you said you feel your father's, energy or, or not energy, but you can feel him and see him around you. But have you really actually like felt him be a part of you today physically? Yeah. Have you felt your dad inside of you? Oh, it's what I'm asking. And I don't Last, mean it inappropriately. This is ironic that we're coming back to this. Cause when you were on my podcast, we we're talking about the first time I saw my dad's dick. Oh, that's right. We did. And now we're coming back to this. So yes. And this is non-sexual. And this is non-spiritual either. So, <laughs> um, no, yeah, no, I, you said with the hands, like I'm, physically, I'm very similar to my dad. Mm-hmm. And apparently as I got older, everyone said I look just like my dad. So sometimes I catch myself. I'm like, oh shit, I actually do kind of look like my dad physically. But then there's some things I think personally that I do because my dad was, you know, I always think when people talk about a eulogy, it's always, po- it's always positive. And then we talk about it, no one ever talks shit on the person that died. <laughs> so I don't want to sound so convenient that my dad was this amazing person, but to me he was personally, he always, he really did light up a room. And I, I do remember, I do remember his presence and how physically I can see other people be so happy to see him. Mm. Like he's, he's charismatic. He's very touchy feely. And so I'm very touchy feely in a sense that friends, like not completely non intimate. Like I'm very, I'd rather sometimes say less and put my arm on you. And hopefully that speaks enough. That's kind of how I am. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I don't want to screw it up in my words. And I feel like I always saw him putting his arm around people and t- tapping his back. So sometimes when I do that and when I, meet people or see my friends and family that I'm excited to see. I, I try to, I try my best to be enthusiastic to see, see it to when I see people for the first time, like we just saw each other. Maybe I wasn't that super enthusiastic. I don't know. But that was one thing I remember with, I feel like when he first saw people, he was always so excited to see them. And I try to, I try to carry that and not in a way that I'm just trying to force it. Like it is amazing when you see someone like we haven't seen each other in a while, whether or how long it goes from here, it's, it's important to make other people feel good. And I feel like he was really good at that. And that's something I try to carry. So when I do do that, I feel like um something I, I feel him. Yeah. And I think it's also a way to maintain a relationship. It's mm. in a way inadvertently continuing some sort of connection to them and also a way to have their essence and in, in what they did, their legend, if you will, live on vicariously through us. I do want to know, have you thought of and do you currently have lessons or mottos that you have acquired from your father or learned from your father, like the way you fathered, the way he lived. Is there any credos or even slogans or something your father would say or believe that you yourself think about or lessons that he taught you? The biggest thing that always stands out for me, it's always the little things in life. And it's something that we've all heard before, but it was always the little things in life are the best things in life. Little things and family. Those are the two things. It's very Italian to say the family thing, but... We are sanctimonious, but it's what it is. These are some great words here. I feel like <laughs> you have your laptop out to look for, at a thesaurus? I, just have, I have words that I use every day, and so today it was sanctimonious. Yeah, no, it De- was posthumous. Debbie over there is like crossing out That's words Nancy. that you've used already. 
That's um, <laughs> Nancy. <laughs> yeah, I, ultimately those are my two biggest things. And I, I try to focus on that because when things get too heavy for me, I feel like usually we're looking at the big things too much. And I think the big things are often overwhelming. So when I look at the little things, that kind of calms me down and makes me realize what's important. Because when I think about memories in general, like say it's so it's not always so much, oh my God, I went on this big trip. We it was the bachelor, but it was with this or that and the other. It's always the specific moments within those memories, if that makes sense. Yes. Then those are the little things and the little things of life. I always see my dad when he, he was so proud to get like the first his first house. He's picking weeds off the ground, like little tiny things like that. He'd have a cigar, he'd sit down, he'd just laugh, this or that. It was always the little things. And I think the little things in life are literally the most beautiful things in life that we tend to lose focus on with all the chaos that's going on. It's always this bigger picture. It's all the shit that's going around us. But if you just like zoom it back into the little things, the little moment of looking at your significant other, stuff Doritos in her mouth, those little moments are the best moments that stick with me personally. So always those little things. And I think that was a big lesson for me to how to live my life. And also when life gets too heavy, how to bring it back. Yeah, it's, it reminds me of a quote that I thought of or found after my dad died. And it said, you'll never know the value of a moment until it becomes a memory. Hmm. I think it was Dr. Seuss. It doesn't rhyme though. It's true. Doesn't everything you say rhyme? Yeah, maybe he, w- he maybe off-roaded one day. Is this like a Dr. Seuss that was like actually a doctor and it wasn't Let's the, see. the author? We're going to find out right now. Say it again, the quote. You'll never know the value of a moment until it becomes a memory. Let's see. Think I could be wrong. Dr. Seuss. Maybe it was him speaking and not writing because it should rhyme. It should rhyme. Maybe it's it, doc- we got gypped. It's Dr. Seuss, the plastic surgeon. <laughs> That's a different Dr. Seuss. <laughs> one death, two death. How bad was your dad's breath? No, I, I want to know now with everything that you're doing with your podcast and you're doing street, street meet now. Yeah, you should do that one, one time. I would love to. Debbie hilarious. and I were just talking about that. Yeah, we so should, we should try that. Tell me what you're doing in the streets. <clears throat> well, uh, yes, I'm doing these interviews in the streets. I'm just literally talking to strangers and asking them about lost death and what happens after death? Have you lost someone? Blah, blah, blah. So I ask the same three questions as have you lost someone? And then from there I'll improvise and try to get it out of them. Then it's, what do you think happens after death? And then are you scared of dying? There's like the three staples, but it's been incredible. Like so far I've done it in Venice, Hollywood. Uh, I did it in Amsterdam recently. I did it in the city a couple of times in Madison square park and Washington square park. And it's amazing to see how many people are willing to talk to you. New York way more. Except, yeah. Except Madison square park. That was way too like, you know, blue, uh, white collar. But in general, it's, I think it's just a powerful conversation as part of the whole mission that I'm trying to do is just normalize death. I'm not a grief expert. I'm a grief experiencer, I guess. I don't have any credentials. It's just it's the conversation and normalizing with quote-unquote normal people that I think is important to me. And I thought it was just fun to get on the street and just talk to random people. And just, you learn so many different experiences. You ask them the, the interesting part is you ask them the same three questions and you constantly get different answers. To, to explore people's beliefs, experiences without judgment, and just show interest in asking them whether whatever my beliefs are, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting to me to hear other people share stories because we're storytelling creatures and what better to learn through other people's experiences than by hearing them talk. Especially the one experience that we all experience, but none of us personally experience. Like we all experience death, but we don't mm-hmm. never experience what the wake of our own death does. Like uh, we can experience right. dying, the act of dying, but as far as the death is something that, we don't experience. I think that's kind of trippy. Like you don't really get to experience your own death. Do you believe that when you do die, you're able to witness what's going on? Or are we gone? That's a really good question. I do believe, and it seems to be that the brain dumps some fun chemicals. Like, seems to be like what like, whatever dump truck is going on in the alley right now. Drop, that's your brain dropping twelve pounds. Dropping of DMT. DMT. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think. I do think something kind of trippy happens mm-hmm. and I do believe that there is something beyond the, the meat suit we're in. What happens so. after we die? I'm not quite sure. I don't know. Have what you do done, you think happens have you after? Done DMT? No. Well, I've done it. And I, 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 <laughs> uh, well, I've done it. It's the most Italian you sound in this whole podcast. Well, I've done I, it. I've done it. <laughs> and I didn't go through, I didn't like break through as a quote, but people I've heard, I've explained as like the dying drug. Mm-hmm. And if I were to speculate what that transition is, that was it. That's how you think it felt, and that's how you think it would be. It was like a transition. It was like, whoom, and then you're just somewhere else. Where were you? Nowhere special. I felt, <laughs> it was like, 
like North Jersey in a February. No, it was uh, it was just like this white place for me. And yeah, I, again, there's like another level I didn't get to. It's a whole other conversation. It's like we, Super Mario Brothers. Mario. Yeah. Mario and Luigi. I was almost I almost spilled out a sketch I'm about to do relating to that, but I can't put it out there yet. Okay. So the it was just a it was just a transition to where we are now, and then all of a sudden it was like my eyes quote unquote rolled in the back of my head, is, and then you just you're literally I feel like I was somewhere else. For me, it was all white. It was utopia. I got through like a fear park because I was scared of what the hell was happening. I was still conscious, but at some point, I didn't have any questions. I didn't ask any questions, but it was as if all my questions were answered, and that's why I feel like it makes sense. I'm like, we go to this place. Nothing was what nothing was bothering me. I wasn't thinking about this, that, the other. Completely stress free. I was just content. I was like very maintained. And as if any questions that I would have or had were answered, and that was it. I know everything now, and it was all okay. No matter what I knew, what I didn't know, it was it was all okay. And it was an incredible utopia. And that experience kind of made sense. I didn't feel like a body. I just felt like I was just kind of conscious, mm. and I was just existing as like an energetic force. That's what it felt like when I went under to get dental work. Okay. And then I woke up and then there was a hole in my mouth and the dentist goes, can you believe Phil Collins used to be a sex symbol? And I said, I think I'm still dead. I'm pretty sure I'm still under. And then that guy got fired. Okay. Cause he put me under and I asked to not go under. Oh, that's, that's a problem. It's exactly what it felt like though. I think he might've just tested out his black market DMT on me and then did dental work. You feel okay after because it's like a weird place to be I'm, conscious. I haven't. I have not made a full recovery. I will never financially or emotionally recover from that dental visit. <laughs> Should we start a new podcast and talk about how you feel? Because that's terrifying. <laughs> Genuinely, I. Okay, so to to answer the question, I want you to answer the question. What do you think? Now you've had a DMT trip, ish. What do you think happens after we die? Keyword think, because I have no idea. Mm -hmm. I do think there's something else. I don't know if that means unicorns and angels in the sky. Again, I, I'm not a physicist or anything of the sort, but Einstein's quote of saying energy cannot be created nor destroyed makes sense to me. Because if we are, by definition, energy, like you think of an atom, I'm speaking out of my ass here, but if you think of an atom, by definition, atom, from my understanding, is energy. And if we are created by atoms, then we are therefore energy. Everything is energy. And if energy cannot be created nor destroyed, can be transmuted, then in some form, we continue. The question to me is, are we conscious? Because like, are we, are we just energy and we float around with no thoughts? I don't know. I do think there's something else. The idea of reincarnation has been sitting with me a little bit more, which scares the shit out of me. I don't know if I want to do this again, to be honest. Right. What if you come back as like a cricket? Well, you whatever. You're dead in like what two years? How long do crickets last? I don't know. What if you were like a store bought cricket and you get fed to a boa constrictor? That would suck. You're not even a free cricket. You're a, you're you're a cricket in a in a pet store. <laughs> a cricket in a yes, that's terrifying. Actually, wouldn't that be horrible? Like, do we get a choice for this whole reincarnation thing? Yeah, if I came back, I would not come back as a Jets fan because that's like a cricket life. <laughs> it's fucking terrible. It is torture. But anyway, back to the topic. It is just. I don't know. It freaks me out. The idea of eternity after this, that's like another balancing act. If we do continue on, does this just not end? Because I, I, that's my thought. If it can't be, if energy cannot be created or destroyed and we just continue on forever, like, like Jim Jeffrey said in one of my favorite stand-up comedic performances ever, he said, like, eventually you're going to get bored. No? That's a good point. But then Maybe again, not. I miss boredom. Not that I'm asking for death. Back up. You miss boredom? I miss boredom. We you, don't, you never bored? Well, I, I am bored. I'm just saying I miss like the childhood style of boredom where we our minds uh. get to roam and we daydream because essentially daydreaming is a result of boredom. Mm. And I think boredom is what we need more of. So maybe there's some sweet inventions we create in death. I hope not. I heard one theory um, real quick that this girl I had on my podcast. She's had a near-death experience, medium, whatever you believe. Her experience as to what happens is that we choose everything. So two things. She was talking about reincarnation, that we come back. Her experience is she went to the other side, and she explains how she, there's soul ages, quote unquote, like we're old souls and young souls, as we've heard before. And I asked her a question. I said, how come some people that have, that cross, that die, quote unquote, don't have near-death experiences? Because in the comments section, I hear that all the time. That's BS. I died for 10 minutes. I didn't see anything. Her explanation from her mouth was that if you're a younger soul, not biological age, a younger soul, quote unquote, you're a new soul, you won't see anything on the other side because you're too, you still have too much to learn. 
So I guess it's kind of Buddhist in regards to if they saw the other side, it's so magnificent. It's so ridiculously loving and warm and this or that. You're not going to come back. So her experience was she went to the other side. And she chose to come back. It wasn't like her ancestor, you got to go back. And she chose to come back. So to her, her thing is we choose this life. So before we, I became David Ferrugio, mm -hmm. I chose- Ferrugio. For David Ferrugio. Ferrugio. <laughs> Forget about it. I, I chose to do this. Like she's like, you pretty much, you chose this. You knew you're going to live this life. <clears throat> But you wanted to experience this life to learn all these lessons. And eventually, as you experience all these lessons, you keep coming back possibly to cause like I still love unfinished business type thing. And then eventually at some point you've experienced anything, you've transcended, if you will, and then you just stay on the other side. That was her whole thing. We keep coming back and you choose the life that we have. And then the thought is, okay, why would I choose like some terrible shit that happens to you? But that's kind of part of the lessons. And to me, it kind of like if I were to speculate and just have fun with the conversations, if you like bring it back microscopically, when we live our life as an individual, as who we are now, we're always trying to level up, right? Mm -hmm. We're always trying to be better, level up, transcend our life, be a better person, do that, extrapolate that to like the greater, whatever the heck it is. It's kind of like that extrapolate on one, like this is one life I live, hopefully I leveled up, then another life and you keep leveling up just in multiple lives. I don't know. It's Super Mario Brothers. It's Super Mario Brothers. You I, keep have to, you, you, you're having to keep punching up that mushroom eat the mushroom and experience a different experience. And then you get that and then you get another mushroom and then you go on to the next level. And eat mushrooms is the key. Yeah, the, <laughs> the whole key is just to eat mushrooms. I'm telling you, that's the truth. <laughs> that's the truth. I did hear on your set talking about mushies a little bit. I do condone them. I For myself, at least when my mother passed away, I microdosed almost daily after that. Microdose. Meditated every single day and microdosed on psilocybin. What did you notice with your meditations on psilocybin? That I was able to be calmer. I was able to find a place of solace within the grief. That I was able to understand what I needed in order to give myself space. Because that's essentially what the meditation became. It became a space for me to feel whatever I was feeling. Because I was home upstate with my sister and her family and her kids and Obviously, that lifestyle can be a little chaotic and also beautiful in of itself to help with grief. The distractions become tools for grief management in a way. The kids and all of the inner workings of that sort of daily life chaos that goes with that. But meditation and mushrooms, I don't know how I would have navigated the grief without them. And it totally evolved my viewpoint on medicine in our modern idea of medicine and also the type of medicine we really need because we only talk about medicine when it comes to disease, but what about medicine in the sense of management and mm. health management? I, I, that's not to say that we need prescriptions constantly. I'm not talking about a pharmaceutical medicine. I'm talking about plant medicine and I'm talking about meditation as a medicine and sort of expanding upon what that word means because I think now that grief, I don't know if you saw, um, I think it was in psychology today, prolonged grief is now considered a disorder, which what? I think is absolutely ridiculous. What? Yes, exactly. It's considered something that is basically another disorder that they can prescribe medication for, as say, I believe, as I understand it. That makes sense. I could be wrong. I could have misread the the article and people love to correct me. Please send me an email, jessiemaypelusocomedy at gmail if you think I'm wrong and in interpreting this wrong or what your interpretation of it was. But the way I interpreted it is, is that they basically said if you're grieving for more than a year, you have prolonged grief. What? 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 Then, yeah, then everyone's lost. Every, then everyone's got prolonged grief. By the way, what about parents who lose their kids? You think they're ever going to get over that? So, so a mom who lost her kid over a year, if she's still sad, has prolonged grief. I don't like the like the idea of just titling something is it's a, it's it's a it's a, not a disease but it's something like that when you put a title on it right it just adds even more questions it fucks I feel like that would fuck you up even more I have a disorder now right well that gives you um you know cause for medication yeah and the medication is not gonna not gonna be there to heal you it's gonna be prescribed you can in perpetuity yeah exactly and you can find ways to manage your grief you create your own medicine is really what, what I learned through grief is I can create my own medicine regimen and it's not going to include one fucking pharmaceutical. And that's not to say pharmaceuticals don't work for people. 
I'm sure they do. And I don't not believe that they, that they're not useful. I, I understand that their uses for it and keep people alive. I'm talking about instances where there are so many other ways to manage it. Well, let me ask you a quick, I don't know how much time you have. For yeah, you, we got a couple more minutes, I think. Real quick for you. We were good a couple more minutes. The, okay. the psilocybin for you, like what, um, what specifically did you pull from it? What did it do? I know you kind of alluded to it, but did it teach you this? Did it open something? Did it, what did it do to you? Like specifically tools wise? S- specifically tools wise, it made it so that when I wasn't meditating or when I wasn't on psilocybin, that I was able to be more present I didn't have as much anxiety. I carried over though when you're yeah. doing it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's not, it's it really rewires your brain. It definitely affects the neural pathways in your brain, and I do think it deviates and creates new neural pathways. Again, I am not a doctor. This is just what I understand, what I've read, and what I've experienced. Is it does feel like a rewiring, and for me, when I wasn't on psilocybin or when there wasn't psilocybin in my body. I just felt calmer. I felt more playful. I felt more present. That's not to say I didn't have moments where I was extremely riddled with sadness and grief, of course, but that is a part of the whole thing. Mm. But I do believe that the the meditation and the psilocybin in union, because it was such a, a low dose, it really helped calm me and it helped me not get so anxious and so worried and so deep into that emotion. But then I also was able to realize the value of those emotions. Mm -hmm. Um, the one thing I want to ask before you leave, there's two things I want to ask you before you leave. First, I want to know, and this might be a heavy question. Do you remember the last memory you have of your father? Yes. The last memory I have of my dad and part of me is like, am I making this memory up? The, we went to a Yankee game. I want to say it was, and I tried looking up the date, which makes sense because Tino Martinez did hit a home run that day. I, we went to see a Yankee game. I think it was a couple <laughs> days before us. So it was September. So end of the season, I caught a Yankee game with him. And I, I, what I remember is he, we got like cheap seats, but then he schmoozed his way up and got us like really close seats. And we just like snuck in. And as soon as we snuck into the, those seats, Tino Martinez was up, lefty batter, my favorite Yankee of all time, probably. And so he would, yep. And we had, we were on the third base side, so it was a great view for like right looking right down the first baseline, and he had a fucking bomb to right field. And it was just the perfect view of him over, like looking the, the perfect line of the right field home run. And that was the last Father Sunday that we had together. He snuck me up, good seats, Yankees, Yankees won. I want to say four nothing. And Tino Martinez, my favorite player, hit a home run. That was the last collective memory of like a day together and the memory that sticks in my head. And to me, the only thing I recollect is this was the night before. I believe in my head, that's how I stuck it, but I don't know, it's been so long. I don't know if I'm making it up. I believe it was September 10th. My dad never had a shirt on and I find myself doing the same thing. And granted, I live alone. And he gave me one of these like his side body turn in the hallway saying he's going to bed and kind of gave me a little salute. A little salute. And it was just... That was the last memory of him. Him giving me a little wave and just saying goodnight. And that is, I believe, the last time that I saw him. And it's so weird in those moments because you don't know. Like now I know that was the last moment. That's the only time you know it's the last moment is when they're gone. And so that's why to me it's cliche. It's so important to treat it like it is the last moment and not in a pessimistic way just because you don't know. We don't know. We don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen when I leave this place. It's just you don't know. And it's not pessimistic. It's not morbid. That is the beautiful thing about death is that when you do consciously think about it, not in a morbid way, it helps you live a fuller, more present, more grateful life. That's so beautifully put. I guess my last question, even though I have a thousand other ones, we're going to have to do a part two. Part three, I guess it would be if we're considering and counting the podcast we did together with your podcast. Mm-hmm. What's the biggest lesson that you've learned and are learning continually from grief? Oh, there's so many lessons in there. I think... Again, for me, it kind of goes back to what I was saying is just the fragility of life and the awareness of the fragility of life changes the way how I live my life. And it helps me bring it back a lot quicker. I think due to my experience with loss, and again, there's so many other people that have it so much worse than me. Even with my experience, I'm like, I don't, my life's been great, even with that, just to preface. But the the awareness of the fragility of life and how quickly something can take from you goes back to that fear and gratitude. It allows you to bring it back. Like I mentioned with the macro micro perspective, it allows me when I am getting carried away, when I do feel anxious, when I do feel nervous 
to pull it back a lot easier. I don't know what that is. I don't know what that means, but I feel like when I do get nervous and I'm going through something shitty, this experience or loss and this lesson just reminds me to be present and understand it is what it is. I hate saying it is what it is, but this is the situation understanding what I can and cannot change. And I'm gonna understand that this situation is I can't change it. Like grief that happened, can't change it. What can I do now? And be more solution-based and moving forward while being present. So that's kind of a convoluted answer, but the experience with grief has allowed me to live life in a way that is more playful and more understanding that shit will happen. It's going to happen. It's inevitable. And to try to look like, look at life in a lens of literally gratefulness and just be aware of what you have now and continue moving forward with that. Well, thank you for being here. I really appreciate you sharing your story and I look forward to chatting with you again about grief and loss. You guys can check his podcast dead talks out on Spotify, everywhere you listen to podcasts, I assume. And your street show is available. You can see clips on his Instagram page as well. And on your YouTube page? Yeah, it's everywhere at Dead Talks Podcast. I think I just started an Instagram for Street Talks, I believe. Smart. Forgetting. Yeah, yes. no, I did. At Dead Talks Street Talks, I think. I don't know. Just Google Dead Talks. You'll find everything, I think. Sounds great. Bye, guys. Thank you. Oh. Yay! Thank you for having me on. Hopefully, that was all right. That was amazing. Oh my God, it's fucking hot. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.